We're, uh, we're glad to be back. Uh, six weeks, we're all over creation. Delta likes us a lot. Uh, and this past uh, week, we were in Colorado. I preached at, at a church in Colorado Springs. And then we stayed for a few days. And uh, we went up to Pikes Peak to the top. And we went to the Royal Gorge. And we went to the Garden of the Gods. Uh, and then we came home. And it's great to be home. You know, God made a beautiful world. And it's fun to go and see all of the things that God made and just wonder at them. But you got to admit, right, there's no place like home. It's always good to be back. And so uh, we're very glad to be back as well. As we come to our text uh, this morning, I want you to pay particular attention to the first word because it's the most important word in these five verses. When you first look at it, you might not think so. But I hope I can convince you through this sermon that, in fact, that's the case. So we're looking at Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Hear God's word. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companions, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. That is the reading of God's word. Let us respond together. The grass withers, the flower fades But the word of our God will stand forever. I said that uh, we went to the Royal Gorge. If you go to the Royal Gorge, about the only thing there is a bridge and a big hole. And uh, I told uh, my wife that at one time, this bridge was the highest suspension bridge in the world. So before we got there, she said, if you think I'm going to cross that bridge, you're crazy. Uh, And I said, but you've got to, because it's the only way you can get to the other side. It's 1,200 feet over there, and you get to look down 1,000 feet, and it's just thrilling. (laughs) I have to say, she actually did it. But the thing I want to point out is a bridge is from getting from here to there, right? A bridge is something you use because you want to cross over there. And the word, therefore, which I said is the most important word in the text this morning, is a bridge word, isn't it? When somebody says, therefore, they're saying, remember what I just said, and remember then what you need to do. That's really what Paul is doing. Paul is saying, I want you to look backwards at the first three chapters of Philippians and then consider what I'm going to tell you now. That's really what he's saying. And this is important because... In the history of the church, we are always arguing over, is it grace or is it works? And actually, it's both. It's grace and it's works. Why? Well, because we are to respond to the gospel in the way we live, the way we think, even the way we feel. But all of that is based on the gospel of grace. So grace produces works and not the other way. And you got to get the order right. That's what Paul is saying. You, you can't get chapter 4 until you understand deeply chapters 1, 2, and 3. Grace produces works. Works don't produce grace. You've got to get the gospel 
before you get the Christian life. Now, biblical uh, theologians call that the indicative and the imperative. The indicative, that's the facts. That's what you plant your feet on, and that's what Paul is saying here. Stand firm. What's he talking about when he's saying stand firm? He's saying stand firm on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what I've just said in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Now, here then is what happens when you stand. That's the imperative. The indicative is the facts. That's what you plant your life on. And the imperative, that's what you do then. That's your responsibility. That's what your life is supposed to look like. Let me put it this way. You've got to keep in mind the fact that only the Lord Jesus Christ saves, period. You can't save yourself. Nobody else can save you. Only Christ can save you. And usually when we say that, we're usually talking about our justification. We understand that the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed us from our sin. We no longer are seen by God as sinners. In fact, God looks at us and says about us, you're as righteous as I am. Now, I always say, not because you are, but because God says you are. Because God has taken the righteousness of his son through the act of the cross and placed it on you. So that when he looks at you, he doesn't even see you. He really sees his son. And that is justification. Sanctification now is another process. That's where daily, hopefully, we're growing to become more like Jesus. So we look more like what we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see that? We begin to look more like what God has already made us in Christ. It's a glorious gospel. But they're both salvation. You can't really sanctify yourself any more than you justify yourself. I admit that in the mountain of justification, only one man climbs that mountain and he has a cross on his back. That's true. In the mountain of sanctification, you're responsible. You need to climb that mountain, but you can't do it in your own strength. If you do it through your own effort, you will fail. In fact, I like to say that if you are the most sanctified person in the world and you're one step from the top of the mountain, remember now, you're the most sanctified person in the world, and you're one step to the top of the mountain, I hate to tell you, but you're one step to the bottom too. You see, we need always, always the gospel. The gospel is is as important to us for sanctification as it is for justification. Yes, We're totally involved in the process of sanctification, but only in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Hear that? I'm crucified with Christ. That's who I am. Yet I live. How do I live? Well, I live through the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. I live by the power of Christ. And he goes on to say that I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There it is right there. Do you see it? It's Christ, 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 and it's me, me, me. But Christ first, and I rest or stand in Christ alone. Luther put it this way, and I like it. The highest of all God's commands is this that we ever hold up before our eyes the image of his dear Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, 
He must be our hearts, the perfect mirror, where we behold how much God loves us and how faithful he is to care for us. That's the most important uh, command that God makes. So now in chapter 4, Paul is getting down to the nitty-gritty, the nitty-gritty of living the Christian life. I mean, look, the first example is a couple of ladies that can't get along in the church. And they're, they're not just hanger-ons in the church. They are important workers in the church. They have been involved with Paul in ministry, and they've been involved with Paul and others, and they've been important in the spread of the gospel. But something happened. Who knows what? But Satan got in there somehow and has destroyed their relationship and it's impacting the whole church. And Paul says, you need to help these ladies. You need, you need to, to come alongside them. Help them to bring Christ back into the center of their relationship. You see that? That's what they need. They don't need just a few ideas about how to communicate. They need the Lord Jesus in the middle of that. He goes on in verse 4 to say, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Why? Well, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. I want you to see whatever you're dealing with. The reason you can rejoice is because the Lord is at hand. He's in the middle of whatever is happening in your life. So what he's saying is don't let go of chapters 1, 2, and 3 and get on with the work of the Christian life in chapter 4. No, the only way to make progress in the Christian life is to constantly and with great determination keep your eyes focused on Jesus. I mean that. The only way you're ever going to make progress in the Christian life is constantly, always, with determination, keeping your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. Augustine said this, The grace of God does not find men fit for salvation. The grace of God makes them so. That's true at every point in our Christian life. So if you get the cart before the horse, you're not going anywhere. If you lose sight of Jesus, I don't care how determined you are to be a righteous, holy, pious believer, you're going to fail. You need Christ right now, right here, as these two ladies need. Paul is saying the first rule then is what in this text? You got to get the cart and the horse right. Horse has got to be before the cart. Grace has got to be come before works. But let's then take a look at a couple of principles that Paul gives us here. Well, the first principle is stand firm in the Lord. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, again, I want you to Consider chapters 1, 2, and 3. He's mean, what he means by saying, stand firm in Christ is, remember what I've just taught you. You know, um, do nothing out of, uh, out of conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Surely you've heard that uh, in one of the sermons while I was gone. That's a great text. Um, consider others better than yourself. Have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Stand firm there. Have you thought about that? 
Have you thought about the fact that standing firm in the Christian life is standing firm in the humility that you realize that everything in your life that's worth anything has been brought to you by the one who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. That's what it means to have the mind of Christ. Or Philippians 1.6, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it unto completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Can you stand there? Confident in what? What God started, he will finish. You're not going to fail. Everything's not going to come crashing in on you. Things might not be exactly the way you plan, but God's plan for your life is better than your plan for your life. Philippians 1.6. Or another great passage in 3.10. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that I might achieve to the resurrection of the dead. Can you stand there? I want to know Christ power of his resurrection, fellowship is sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. Or, I don't know, maybe you get up in the morning, you read the newspaper. I don't know. Does anybody read the newspaper anymore? Anyhow, you get the news somehow and you think, the whole world is coming unglued. Everything's falling apart. And then you remember Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Our citizenship is not of this world. This is not where we ultimately live. You see, that's what it means to stand firm. If you're going to stand firm, there's only one solid place to stand. It's in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that look like, anyhow? I'm going to give an illustration. When I was a pastor in Tampa, we had a man who had a company. He was half owner of the company, and they produced more papaya juice than anybody else in the world. They were a papaya juice company. Isn't that exciting? And uh, they made a batch of papaya juice. And when they looked at the statistics and all based on it, they realized that they were just two degrees short of what was required uh, to bottle that papaya juice and ship it out. Now, papaya juice has all kinds of acidic acid in it and so on. So two degrees is probably not going to make any difference at all. There's nothing going to really live in that. But this man who was an elder in our church said, if we ship that out, it's not right. And his partner said, but it's not going to hurt anything, and that is going to kill us financially. And the elder in our church said, but we can't do it. It's not right. And he had to buy out the other man his half of the company, to do what was right. took him a long time to get back to level ground. But I think that's what it looks like to stand firm. It's to do what's right in Christ. You see, it doesn't matter whether it's not going to hurt anything. God is the one that looks at your life, and you're the one who looks at Christ. And it's on that basis that you make your decisions. So the first rule is stand firm in the gospel. The second rule, I believe here, is that we need each other. And of course, that's seen in this story of the two ladies. I'm not going to pick on them. I don't even know them. And many times I've read that passage and I feel sorry for them, you know. I mean, my goodness, 
several thousand years and you'll go down in history as two ladies who can't get along in the church. But I think what Paul is really saying to us is we need each other. These two ladies need each other. And the church needs them. He says that. He says, help them because they're important to me and they're important to the gospel. I want to say to you, as you stand firm in the Lord, you can't do it by yourself. I mean, it's one of the reasons you come to church on Sunday. But there are other opportunities as well to get together because we need each other. And we need the encouragement of each other. And we, frankly, need to be loved by each other. You know, last week, before I left to go to Colorado, I went and did a Bible study for my son. It's over in Athens, and um, at, um, it's a very interesting group. I mean, one of the men used to be the chaplain of that team that won last night. Uh, another uh, fellow is... Uh, well, he's been nominated five times for the Nobel Prize. How do you like that? You know, a football chaplain and a Nobel Prize winner. And there's a colonel that's retired from the army. And, and there's a bunch of other people in this Bible study kind of devotion on Thursday mornings. And I look at my son and I see how important that group of men is to him. It makes all the difference in the world. And he looks forward every Thursday morning to that not just because what they're learning, but because what they're giving to each other in Christ and how they're encouraging each other. And that's just one example. You know, we're the PCA, the Preston Church in America. We started our denomination and left another denomination because we thought that denomination's view of Scripture was way off, and we still think that. But we've got to be careful that we don't become, you know, what some people call fighting fundies. You know, where we're just battling all the time, where we don't know what we're for, but only what we're against. And I'll tell you why. Because we need each other. We need each other. If you want to see the work of, of the Lord, it looks like this. And if you want to see the work of Satan, it looks like that. It's that simple. And what are we doing to encourage each other and, and come along each, alongside of each other? Um, you know, one thing you could do just this morning when you leave here is just look at somebody, look them in the eye and smile. You know, sometimes we just beat it out of here like, boy, we got to get home, you know. And, uh, but you came here because you needed Jesus. But you needed Jesus' people as well. John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus said, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. When people come here, the people say, Wow, these people are standing in the gospel. And the reason I know is, look, no, not their theology, uh, not how often they pray, not even often they come to church. Look how they love one another. That's the new commandment that Jesus gave us. Forgiveness ought to be the reflection uh, that we reflect toward others in most situations. Why? Well, 
Easy, isn't it? Because we've been forgiven by Jesus himself. Everything that we have ever done, ever are doing, ever will do, has been forgiven on a cross 2,000 years ago. We've been forgiven. Let us forgive others. Ernest Hemingway, in one of his short stories, The Capital of the World, told a story about a son named Paco. Now, evidently, that's a very common name in Spain. And Paco just didn't get along with his father, and they fought all the time and so on. And so one day, Paco just decided he had enough of this man. He was rid of this man, and he trucked off to Madrid. His father followed him there, found out that he was living somewhere in the city, and he wrote in the newspaper, Dear Paco, meet me in front of the newspaper at noon. All is forgiven. I love you, Dad. Ernest Hemingway said the next day in front of the newspaper office, 800 Paco showed up. <laughs> we all need forgiveness. We all need to love. I had a call one time several years ago by a man who uh, went to another one of these universities. I think it was the University of Alabama. It actually was. And um, he called to tell me that he'd been talking to his pastor uh, about the great sins that he had committed when he went off to this terrible college uh, or university, and he only stayed one year, and he came back just guilt-ridden completely. And he went to his pastor, and his pastor tried to help him and so on, but couldn't uh, help him. So his pastor said, well, call Koistra. I'm not sure why, but he called. And he told me, he said, you would not believe the things I did in my freshman year at the university. Now, I went to the University of Alabama myself. I think I can probably guess what he did. And, uh, but he said, it's far worse than anything you can imagine. And I said, but listen, you can be forgiven. God will forgive you. No, God can forgive some things, but he could never forget, forgive what I did. It was too great. He has to punish sin as great as that. I said to him, you know what? You're right. I hadn't thought about it. You're right. God can't let sin like that just go. He's got to punish it, and he has. He nailed that sin to a cross. He's not going to punish his son for your sin and then punish you too. You see, God has forgiven us and we, in turn, need then to forgive others. You see, I want you to see how practical this is, the Christian life. Christian life is not just a life of gutting it out, sheer grit, by faith. No. You know, look again. The Christian life is lived, that is chapter 4, and we'll look at again some more of chapter 4 later on, but on the basis of chapters 1, 2, and 3. Suppose you're struggling in a marriage. How are you going to deal with that? Well, again, you look at the Bible, and uh, you look at uh, chapter 2, verse 3, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. I'm telling you, if a man will do that, 
make all the difference in a marriage. If a woman will do that, it will make all the difference in marriage. You can save a marriage based on Philippians 2, 3, 4, and 5. What if you're in a relationship and it's an important relationship and you've just got dumped? Or you had a job and it was a great job and the company closed down. How are you going to deal with that? I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it unto completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He's going to be there. What if you decide you're, you're not the Christian that you want to be? Philippians 3, 12. Not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make up my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward or what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You know, if you take this seriously, you can take a risk. I've told this story so many times, you're probably tired of it, but, you know, I got to be the president of a seminary one time. I hardly got out of seminary and I ended up being the president of a seminary. And it was a total surprise to me. It was a total surprise to everybody. I was number 21 on the list. They didn't expect to, to ever get to 21. They didn't even expect to have a 21. They added the, my name to the list late. And they were working up here. They started with R.C. Sproul and then James Boyce and so on down the list. And all of those people said no, you know. And it got down to the last man standing, number 21. Now, I talked to my friends. I said, do you think I should take that job? They said, no. You got a great job. You're teaching in a seminary. And you go there, that place is dying. That's why R.C. Sproul and James Boyce didn't want to go there. That place is dying. If you go there, it'll die around you. So I talked to my wife about it. I said, what do you think? She said, what do you think? I said, well, you know what? We don't have a name like some of those big names. So we got nothing to lose. (laughs) And we didn't, did we? We had absolutely nothing to lose because what happened, what would have happened if the place had failed? It didn't fail, but what what would happen if it did? God would still be there. The gospel would still be true. Everything that I believe would still be absolutely firm ground to stand on. That's what Paul is talking about. Do you see it? Do you see it? What about, again, just living day to day? I pointed out that you know, the world seems on fire right now. And uh, 320 is a great verse. Our citizenship is not of this world. I like what C.S. Lewis said about that. Aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. You see, we keep our eyes focused on the fact that a day is coming when Jesus Christ will make everything right. Everything. Everything. And we can live with courage, real courage today, because he's at work moving towards that day when he comes again. Maybe it'll be today. Maybe it'll be in a hundred years. I don't know. But that's the confidence in which we live. You know, there is a cartoon, or used to be a cartoon, Calvin and Hobbes, you know them? 
Uh, Calvin is a little six-year-old, and Hobbes is a tiger. I think his kind of his stuffed toy or something. I really, but Calvin and Hobbes are talking, and uh, Calvin says to Hobbes, "I feel really bad because I called Susie names, and that made her feel really, really bad." And Hobbes says to Calvin, "Well, then, why don't you just tell her you're sorry?" And Calvin says, I keep hoping that there's a less obvious solution. <laughs> Our text today, Paul is saying something really simple. And it is more than obvious. Paul is saying there's an effective way to stand firm in the gospel and not waver. Waver. It is to remember who Christ is. It's to remember what He has done. And to remember then who you are and what He requires of you. Christ in you. By faith, live it. That's the gospel today. And that's our text. Let's pray. Father, in many ways we focused on one word, therefore. Therefore, we're to stand. Therefore, really does remind us of all of the, the weighty things that you have taught us in chapters 1, 2, and 3. If those are not true, then everything that we are required to do is meaningless. We could not even achieve it. But if, if everything that you've taught us in chapters 1, 2, and 3 are Truth are truthful. They are, in fact, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then everything's possible. We pray, we pray, Father, that we might remember Christ and keep our eyes focused on Him, as Luther said. And remember who we are, those who are redeemed in Him. Help us to put those two things together by faith so that, in fact, we can live it. We pray in Christ's name, amen.